So, Mark, come and share with us. And, and I told Mark I was going to do this, so I want to ask you a question as you come. Thinking about last night, thinking about um, Psalm 1 um, setting a trajectory for us in, in the reading of the Psalms, um, that, that this is a doorway into understanding how to live the happy life, a life of blessedness, as opposed to the way of the, the wicked which perishes. Um, and be, because, I, because I've sort of made my way into these two books, I know that you believe, along with Jesus, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 1. All of the Old Testament scriptures point to him and find their fulfillment in him. So here's my question. Given the fact that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, how does Psalm 1 find its fulfillment in Jesus? Great question. And uh, I'm not going to answer it. I'm not. Uh, Until the end of the lesson. And uh, when we get to the end of the lesson, uh, I will proffer an answer to Mike's excellent question, which I didn't plan, but it's a great, great segue. Well, we did uh, talk last night about the first half of Psalm 1, and and we're saying that uh, Psalm 1's purpose uh, is not so much to be a hymnal as it is to be an instruction manual, and I haven't really demonstrated that yet. But that's what we're going to do in this lesson. Um, So just presuming that I'm correct, we said that it's an instruction manual for, in Jesus' words, uh, abundant living. But um, in the language of the catechism, it is uh, an instruction manual for what kind of living? Two H's. Happy and holy. And in terms of that happy, we did talk, as Mike said, about the fact that um, happiness is the opposite of perishing. But perishing in Psalm 1, by the way, perish in the book, in the, in the Bible at times does mean die. It means perish like we think of perishing. My father perished a couple of weeks ago. It does mean that at times, but not in the context of Psalm 1. In the context of Psalm 1, perish means what? Nothing. Nothing. It means a life that amounts to? Nothing. And so um, a, a happy life is not a life that amounts to nothing. It's a life that amounts to? Something It makes a difference. It's a life of meaning, a life of purpose. And we talked about the fact that um, blessedness is not only this sense of uh, a life of meaning and purpose, but it's a life of happiness. Happiness in, in the sense of what? What's one word to define happiness starts with a W? Well-being. Happiness in the sense of well-being. Well, it's hyphenated. Then, then it's only one word. Are you an English teacher? <laughs> okay. Um, I, 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 sometimes I write it with a hyphen and sometimes I don't, but we'll treat it as one word hyphenated. Um, um, so, uh, well-being in how many areas of life? All. And that makes sense because Jesus as your redeemer was first of all your what? Creator. And how many aspects of life did he create? All of them. So how many aspects of life is he in the process of redeeming? 
So he's he's interested in the wholeness of who we are, both in creation and in redemption. Well, this morning now we're going to look at the other H. We're going to look at the holy side, how the book of Psalms is a, an instruction manual for a holy life. And um, here we're going to do uh, two things. Number one, we want to see how the how Psalm word that uh, many Christians uh, and non-Christians know, it's the word Torah. Everybody say Torah. What's Torah mean? Law. law. It means law. Now, we're going to say Torah because we speak English, but if we were in speaking Hebrew, we wouldn't say Torah. We would say Torah because Hebrew tends to accent the words on the last syllable. Um, but English tends not to do that. So in Hebrew, we say Torah and uh, in English, we say Torah. Every time I say Torah, it makes me think of that movie, Torah, Torah, Torah. But at any rate, um, okay, I may go back and forth, but it's the same word, even if the accent shifts, which isn't true in English, right? There's a difference between resume and resume. You just shift the accent and you go from a noun to a verb or verb to a noun. But so if I say Torah or Torah, same word. Now, this word means instruction. It's typically translated most of the time in most of our translations with the word law. But remember when we were talking about prosperity and success? Prosper is narrow and success is instruction is and law is because there are many kinds of instruction. Law being just one kind. And the word Torah in Hebrew means instruction, broadly speaking, sometimes referring to the narrow laws, but at other times it means something broader. Turn, for example, to Psalm 78, 1. Uh, translators get this, and I think uh, at least a number of our translations are going to get this. I'm not sure about the NASB, but the ESV and the NIV will. Uh, Psalm 78, 1, O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. That's the NIV. I think the ESV might have the word instruction there, does it? And so does the New American Standard. Okay, so they, they all do. Well, guess what the Hebrew word is? Torah. Uh, it's, but notice they don't translate it law, they translate it teaching, which is what I think they should do in Psalm 1 as well. That's the point that I'm making. How about going over to Proverbs 1.8? Proverbs 1.8. Again, sounds like Psalm 78. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's Teaching, that word teaching, your mother's teaching, your mother's Torah. See, again, what, what's the ESV say there in Psalm, in Proverbs 1.8? Mother's instruction, teaching, uh, NASB probably says the same thing. King James probably says the same thing. Now, what's interesting, Mike mentioned that uh, the second book, Joy Comes in the Morning, and they tell the story of the three basic kinds of psalms. Happy psalms when all is well, sad psalms when the bottom falls out, 
happy psalms when God puts our feet back on solid ground after the bottom had fallen out. Those are what I, this is real technical, I call those the three big ones. Uh, but there are other kinds of psalms that there aren't as many. One kind of psalm is a wisdom psalm. Psalm 78, which sounds just like Proverbs 1, is a wisdom psalm. And Psalm 1 is also a wisdom psalm. Wisdom teaching is concerned with like Ashrei, blessedness. Wisdom teaching is concerned with the two ways, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked, the way of the wise, the way of the fool. So Psalm 1, like Psalm 78, like Proverbs 1, they're all in the same category of literature. And as you know, words mean in context. When you change the context, you change the meaning. And, um, for example, if I say, if I'm at Home Depot, or Lowe's, equal opportunity, in case anybody works at one of those places, uh, and, I, and I hear somebody saying to um, one of the um, Home Depot, Lowe's workers, that's a bad board. Board, give me another L word for board. Lumber, Lumber and give me an, any kind of word for bad that it might be. Um, Flawed. Unsatisfactory because it might be warped or cracked or, you know, you with me? So bad, that's, that's unsatisfactory lumber. Now, um, presume that you're at the beach, uh, and you're overhearing a couple of my sons talk to a friend, and one of those friends comes up to one of my sons and says, man, that's a bad board. Now, what, what does bad now mean? Really good. And what does board mean? Something that only has the smallest bit of lumber running down the center in that spine. The rest of it's styrofoam and fiberglass. And so you see, you change context and you change what? You change meaning. And so the point is that in a text like Proverbs 1, Psalm 78, Psalm 1, all of which are wisdom instructional texts, Torah means it means instruction, it means teaching. That, that's the point that we want to see. So we, we would better translate, his delight is in the instruction of the Lord, and on his instruction he meditates day and night. Now, if you're going to delight in this instruction, and later as we'll see, meditate on it, you've got to know where to find it. So where are we going to find this thing called the instruction of the Lord. We're going to find it in at least two places. Now, the uh, the book of Psalms, I know when I grew up as a kid in church, I always kind of thought that the way the books of the Bible came about was God told somebody to sit down one day, I got a book for you, and the guy would like sit down with pen and paper in hand and God would like tell him what to say and he would write it down and it would be finished. Well, the writing of the books of the Bible is not quite that simple, and especially the book of Psalms. Uh, Mike read last night from, or, or we sang, from Psalm 90. Did you read it or did we sing it? We sang it. It starts in the title, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Well, that psalm is about, let's just use as a rough figure, 1400 B.C., Take a psalm like 137, there by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept while our captors said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
how can I sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? That's at least the Babylonian captivity. But really, if you continue to read, it's after the Babylonian captivity. Let's just say about 400 B.C. So the earliest Psalms are written about 1400, the latest about 400. So they were written by many people, many different times, many different places, and then brought together until finally it was finished. God was inspiring the 150 all along until he said, stop, I'm done inspiring Psalms. We now want to like get this thing published. And so they get it published. It's about 400 B.C. It's like the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. So one and two were put up front as an introduction. What we want to know is in that context of the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, what would the Torah of the Lord have meant to those people? We can find out. Let's look at two verses. Let's go to Ezra, which is just before, um, back before uh, Psalms, before Job before Esther, before Nehemiah, go to Ezra chapter 7 and verse 6. It says, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well versed in the Torah of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Notice it's called the Torah of Moses. But it's qualified, the Torah of Moses, which the Lord had given. Now, what do we call the first five books of the Old Testament? We call it Pentateuch, five scrolls. Jews don't call it the Pentateuch because that's from the Greek and Latin tradition. What do Jews call the first five books? They call it the Torah. Uh, and if they want to expand that, the Torah of the Lord or the Torah of Moses. See, here's the Torah of Moses, but notice it's given by the Lord. Hold that thought. Go back another book to 2 Chronicles 34. 2 Chronicles 34.14. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the Torah of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Now, Ezra and Chronicles were both written at the same time that the book of Psalms was published. So this is the context. The way the way Torah of the Lord was used in Chronicles and in Ezra and Nehemiah is the way people would have heard it in the book of Psalms when the book of Psalms was first completed. Now, here's the question. If the Torah of Moses was given by the Lord... And the Torah of the Lord was given through Moses. What's the relationship between the Torah of the Lord and the Torah of Moses? They're the same thing. So that when people are reading Psalm 1 for the first time and it says his delight is in the Torah of the Lord, they thought right away, I know where to go for this. I'm going to go to the five books of Moses to the Torah. It would have meant to them not warped lumber. It would have meant good surfboard because that's the context um, in which this phrase is. That's the that's the context in which it was used at the in the beginning of Psalms and in Ezra and in Chronicles. So where do you go for the 
Torah of the Lord, you go to the five books of Moses. But that's only the first place they would have thought of. They would have immediately thought of a second place. And the second place is the five books of the Psalms. Now, if you, you'll recall, if you go back to Psalm 1, you'll recall last night that I talked about the fact that most of your Bibles have something at the beginning of Psalm 1, like Book 1, Psalms 1 to 41. Do you see that? That's not part of the ancient text. That's the work of a modern editor to help you understand what's going on in the book of Psalms. But that is reflecting the ancient text. It's interesting that in the ancient text of the Hebrew book of Psalms, the Psalms are divided into five books. They're not divided into four books. And they're not divided into six books. They're divided into five and precisely five, and there's a reason for that. But first of all, let's look at those five divisions. It says that um, book one ends at Psalm 41. Let's find out why. Turn to the end of Psalm 41. Now, at the end of Psalm uh, 41, you have verse 13, and you'll notice some extra white space before verse 13. We'll talk about that in our second lesson later this morning as to why that white space is there. But notice that verse 13 says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Or in some of your translations, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Uh, sometimes in public worship here we sing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. What do we call that? Doxology. So how does Psalm 41 end? Give me one D word. It ends with a doxology. And as a matter of fact, it then says, Amen and Amen. And if you were to have read the whole book of Psalms from 1 to 41, this is the first time you've ever read the word Amen. And we use Amen to do what? End. Let it be so at the conclusion of a prayer, for example. And so notice, we do that for a reason. Zero Mostel. Tradition. That's right. And, and that tradition is very deep. In the book of Psalms, they ended things by saying, Amen. But not just Amen. Amen and Amen. Like Jesus saying, Verily, verily, truly, truly. So, a doxology is placed. In all likelihood, this little doxology was not part of Psalm 41. It's an independent doxology that is put right at the end here, like a big punctuation mark, saying we're now at the end of book one. Now, at the beginning of 42, it says 42 to 72. So let's go to the end of 72. And beginning in verse 18, you'll notice some white space before verse eight, before the verse. And then it says, praise or blessed. Praise be to the, to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. There's our second doxology, second time we get the word amen in the book of Psalms. So once again, book Two is ended with a doxology and amen. See, the ancient, the Holy Spirit didn't just inspire the individual psalms, 
but inspired the assembling of the Psalms into a book and inspired them to have punctuation marks to break it up, not into four, not into six, but into five books. Now, notice that note in verse 20. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. What might you not expect to find after Psalm 72 in the book of Psalms? Prayers by David. Guess what you find quite a few of after Psalm 72? Prayers of David. So what's going on here? Well, the the Psalms were, as I say, written over a thousand year period. But the Holy Spirit didn't wait till the end of the process to begin to collect them. The Holy Spirit was inspiring people to collect small batches of psalms along the way, like a group of psalms of David, a group of the songs of the sons of Korah, a group of the psalms of Asaph, a group of psalms called the songs of ascent. So all along the way over this thousand years, psalms are being collected into batches. And then sometimes the Holy Spirit inspired people to take batch A and put it together with batch B. And then later to take batch A and B and put it together with batch C until, stop, 150, we're done here, folks. You follow me? So it's a long process. Now, this note, Psalm 72, originally was at the conclusion of one of these smaller batches of the Psalms of David. And for some reason, the Holy Spirit wanted that note included in the whole collection. Perhaps if for no other reason than to give us a little window into the beautiful process that was uh, um, used by God to go from one Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, to the whole collection of 150 to show us kind of the human side of this. Because is Jesus God or man? Both. Is the Bible human or divine? Both. But like Jesus is man except no sin. The uh, the Bible is human except no errors. And so we can see kind of an analogy between Jesus being fully God and fully human except no sin. And the Bible being fully divine and fully human except no error. Uh, and so this kind of gives us a little window into that kind of human side of the whole process of the composition of the book of Psalms. Uh, so now the question. Oh, oh, no, we're not done. Sorry. Uh, 73 to 89. Let's look at the end of 89. And you know what we're going to find there, right? Give me a D word. Doxology. Uh Notice in 89, it's a short one. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Uh, And now the next book ends at 106. And uh, notice it says in verse 48, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. And then, of course, uh, when we get to. One, and we're, we're going to see this on Sunday morning when we study the whole book of Psalms. 146, 147, 148, 149, 150. They all start and stop with 
Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That's the grand doxology, not only to the fifth book, but to the entire book of Psalms. Now, so just all I've done right now is kind of demonstrate to you that in the ancient text, punctuated by these doxologies, uh, the Holy Spirit inspired the book of Psalms to be put together in such a way that it's made up of five books, not four, not why five Torah. That's exactly right, uh, because the five books of Moses are what Hebrew word. Torah, the five books of Psalms are what Hebrew word Torah, Torah means what I word instruction, Torah is instruction. If the five books of Psalms are the Torah of the Lord and Torah is instruction, what is the fundamental purpose of the five books of Psalms in one I word? It's here for our instruction, instruction to live a life. What kind of life? Happy and holy. So you see, I'm not, I don't think I'm making this up. I think I'm getting this out of the text itself just by being a detective and asking what things mean and why things are the way they are. So Torah means instruction, and this instruction is found in two places. Uh, in the Torah of the Lord, five books of Moses, the Torah of the Lord, five books of the Psalms. And then ultimately, it's all of Scripture. Because as Mike said, I think last night or this morning when we were chatting, um, all of Scripture is God breathed and it's profitable. And the first thing Paul says it's profitable for is instruction. So ultimately, this applies to uh, the whole of the Scriptures. And this instruction is our delight. Remember Psalm 112 last night? Uh, Psalm 112 says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great Delight in his commands or uh, turn over to Psalm 119. What's Psalm 119 known for? Longest Psalm 119:47. for I delight in your commandments because I love them. You know, sometimes when we think of the word commandment or law or even instruction, it feels like a heavy word that is made like to weigh us down. All these commands. Read Psalm 119, the longest psalm. You won't find any, not a sense at all that God's commands, that God's law, that God's instruction is something that weighs us down. You'll find this theme running through the whole. I delight. I run with freedom. Uh, it's the the law will set you. That's that's the perspective here. If you want the Cliff's Notes version, let's say you can't read Psalm 119 in one sitting, but you just want to read the Cliff's Notes version. Put an asterisk in your Bible by verse 97. 97 is really the Cliff's Notes version of the of Psalm 119. Oh, how I Love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Uh, this, it's our delight. And of course, no wonder the book of Psalms is our delight. If it's an instruction manual for this happy living, who wouldn't delight in that? You know, if, if, if I were to say to you, I've got a suitcase with a million dollars in it uh, and it's for you. 
One of your first questions might be why, but after I said, I'm not telling you why, your next question would be, where is it? And, and then if I would say to you, here's a map that'll take you right to it, I think you'd probably delight in that map, wouldn't you? Well, that's what the, uh, that's what the uh, book of Psalms is. It's a map that leads us uh, in this life of happiness and this life of holiness. That's why I say it's an instruction manual. If we go over to um, the book of Joshua, chapter 1. Uh, Joshua 1, the first nine verses are a sermon. And um, God's the preacher. There's only one person in the congregation, Joshua. Uh, that'd be a little bit freaky, right? If God were preaching and you were the only one sitting in the whole room, that's what's going on here. And uh, notice what, uh, what God says in verse 8. Do not let this book of the Torah depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Just like Psalm 1, meditate on it and it leads you in that path of true prosperity and true biblical success. That's why we delight in it. So what we've done so far is we have looked at uh, the Psalms in the holy life in terms of a call from Psalm 1 to delight in the Lord's instruction. And now the other thing we want to do is look at this idea of a call to meditate to meditate on the Lord's instruction because Psalm 1 says uh, his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Now here's your second Hebrew word for the day. Hagah. Everybody say Hagah. You can spell it H-A-G-A. Hagah. It's the word that's translated meditate. We want to get our arms around what ancient um, Hebrew meditation would look like. Because remember, if you change context, you change meaning. And what meditate meant in the ancient world and what meditate means in the 21st century in the United States, hypothetically at least, might be two different things. Uh, so let's look at what this Haggah business is. Um, first of all, when we meditate in the ancient way, we meditate with our mouths. If we were going to, in modern terms, if I were to say, okay, let's take um, five minutes to meditate in this room. What's one thing that would characterize the room? Silence. Silence. If we were in an ancient um context and i would say let's take five minutes to meditate it wouldn't be silent you meditate with your mouth um, remember that uh, joshua 8 text that i just read do not let the book of the torah of the lord depart from your mouth but meditate on it see the connection between mouth and meditate or think of Psalm uh, 19, verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my... Notice again the connection between meditation and mouth. 
Now, I didn't grow up Presbyterian. I grew up in the Christian Missionary Alliance. Anybody from a CMA background? No? Christian, I didn't know it. But when I grew up, I grew up as a dispensational Arminian Baptist. <laughs> Nobody used that language when I was growing up. If they did, it went right over my head. But later on, as I became a little bit more theologically sophisticated, I realized, hey, I was an Arminian dispensationalist Baptist back then. Um, but at any rate, we had prayer meeting on Wednesday night. I grew up kind of old school where you had two services, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. They weren't a repetition of the same service as is our custom today. And then we had uh, Wednesday night prayer meeting and uh, the pastor would um, take prayer requests and then he would say, let's pray. But when we prayed, we didn't wait for each other. You didn't pray in sequence with each other, number one, and you didn't pray silently. Everybody prayed simultaneously out loud. Any, anybody grow up with that kind of praying tradition? We have a few folk who did. If you ever go to a Korean prayer meeting, well, you probably won't because Koreans pray at like 4.30 in the morning and most of us aren't going to be there with them. But Korean prayer is um, typically characterized by early morning prayer. And it's also characterized by praying simultaneously out loud, everybody. If we were to meditate in the ancient biblical way, that's what the room would sound like. Everybody would be meditating on a scripture text out loud. You'd be using your mouth. The word Haggah is used in a number of different ways. It can be used for the low cooing of a dove or the low growl of a lion. Or low, inarticulate human speech. You know, like when you're in a, in a room with numerous conversations and you can hear somebody talking over there. You can hear them talking, but you can't hear what they're saying. That's Haggah. And that's what we would be doing if we were meditating in the ancient way. We'd have a scripture that we would be reciting in a low way, out loud. And as we'll see as we're reciting it, we're thinking about what it means. So, first thing we see is that ancient meditation is out loud with our mouths, as opposed to modern meditation, which is typically silent. Now, another thing. If we were meditating in a modern way, what's the goal of modern meditation with regard to mental activity? None. The goal of meditation is to shut off mental activity. Not ancient Hebrew meditation. Hebrew meditation does not have as its goal to turn off the mind. Hebrew meditation has as its goal engaging the mind. You remember, remember that um, Psalm 19? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. That's where we're getting at this idea of engaging the mind. Now, a little stretching exercise for you. Everybody point to the place on your body. Touch the spot on your body where you think. Ancient, if I, if I were back in David's day and I had a, I'm, I'm teaching a Bible lesson in the temple and I would say to everybody, I want you all to point to where you think. They wouldn't do this. What would they do? They would go here. Remember, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Now, see, in, for us, heart is what? 
Heart, heart, what happens in our hearts metaphorically? What do we do in our hearts? We, we feel in our heart. We think in our head. We feel in our heart. That's why preacher types like me often say, man, you got to get it to drop from here to here. Right? Sorry, from the head to the heart. For feeling? Yes, that's, well, that's because you read King James. Um, big, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, in, in the language of the king, the Apostle Paul speaks of bowels of compassion. Have any of you ever had butterflies? In your feet? In your fingers? Where do you get butterflies? In your gut? Uh, see, these are various metaphors that articulate um, we feel in our gut, we feel in our heart. These, these are various cultural metaphors. Um, all I want to say is that the way the ancients spoke was that they spoke of the heart not only as a place of feeling, but also as a place of thinking. In the language again, see, we, we, we're not going to go back to King James because there's, it's just like too weird for where, how we speak now. But there's some good things back in the king, like the proverb that says, as a man thinketh in, no, not thinks. King James didn't say thinks. He said thinketh. We got to get that thinketh in there. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Thinketh in his heart. So when we, if we're meditating in the heart, that means we're doing what? We are thinking. So to meditate with the heart is to think. And as, as Mike said last night, it's not just to think, but it's to think deeply. Kind of an earthy metaphor, but it, I think it works. You know, like a cow chewing its cud. The cow, the cow swallows and kind of brings it back up and swallows and brings it back up because the cow wants to get everything possible nutritionally out of that food. And that's meditation. It's turning it over and over in our minds, thinking about it, probing it until we really know what it has to do with our lives and what kind of transformation it calls on for us. Um, I have a, a, a deceased father of a good friend of mine. And he once said, I love speed reading. Because speed reading teaches me very quickly what books I want to read slowly. Lee, slowly. Makes sense, huh? Uh, for example, the book of Proverbs. Lots of folks are in the habit of reading a whole chapter a day. That means you get through it 12 times a year because you read through the book. That's a wonderful discipline. You know what another wonderful discipline is? Take one proverb and read it every day for 30 days. Slowly. Uh, sometimes when I teach a class on the book of Psalms, I assign as a project that at the, at the beginning of class, students have to pick a psalm. And they have to read that psalm every day until the end of the course. And then they have to write a reflection paper on it. And inevitably, they say to me, you know, about the end of week one, I was saying, okay, I got this. You mean I got to read this thing for the rest of the semester? And by the end of the semester, they're saying, man, I have seen so much in this psalm. 
because we read it over and over and over again. And every time we read it, you see, the, the, God's word is like a diamond with all these different facets. And every time you turn it, you see something new and you see something fresh uh, in, that, in that book. Um, I, I remember uh, a, um, an, an experience that I had when I was first teaching in California. So this was, let me just say, probably around 1989-1990. I was invited to a uh, to speak at a family church camp, and in the front row, which means the second row, because no Presbyterians sit in the front front row. Yeah. In the front row, which means in the second row, there was a gentleman uh, there, and he was one of the founding fathers of the denomination, a retired pastor. Forgot more theology than I knew at that point. And he's sitting there taking notes. I'm a young guy. He's making me a little bit nervous. And I'm just waiting for that other shoe to drop. And so after about the fourth day, he says, Mark, can I talk to you? And I said, I knew it was coming. And uh, he says, there's a tree out back with a bench. I thought, tree, woodshed, it's all the same. So we go out and sit down, and he opens up his notebook, and he says, you know, I, I've been listening to you teach, and I've always had a couple of questions, and I think you might have some answers for me. Here's a man in his 80s, sitting every day taking notes, young, wet behind the ears, and uh, he, he still wants to learn. Do you know how many times he's read the scriptures? And yet there's always something new. There's always something fresh. God's word is living and it's active and it's powerful. And as we continue to meditate on it, we continue to think deeply about it. And we continue to see new things. One of the things I love about teaching is students. Now, I know we joke and say this would be a great place to teach if there weren't any students here. But um, but really, uh, for example, every spring I read through the book of Jonah with my second year Hebrew students. Inevitably, I learn something new about the book of Jonah because somebody asked me a question and they asked me a question about something that I've never thought about before. And I either have the answer or I look for the answer. But I mean, I've been reading Jonah in Hebrew Every year since 19, probably 73, you'd think I'd be done. Always something new to learn. That's meditation, thinking, thinking deeply. One last thing, thinking deeply in the spirit. Uh, just so that you know that I do read the other Testament from time to time. First uh, John two twenty seven. The Apostle John in 21 John 2, 27 as, says, as for you, and he doesn't say as for you teaching elders, as for you ruling elders, as for you deacons, as for you BFS Bible study teachers. He says, as for you Christians, he's talking to all Christians. Uh, he says, as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. You're anointed. 
Now, this is not language that we typically use as Presbyterians. Uh, we typically don't say, man, Mike was really anointed on Sunday. It's, other churches speak that way. It's just not the way we speak. It, it's not our, our, our way of talking um, in, in Presbyterian circles. And that's okay. It's true, though. It's true. There is an anointing. Uh, but it's not just for a select few on TV. The anointing, John says, you all have it. You are anointed. I don't know if you think of yourself that way. See, we might think of some TV preachers, man, he's really anointed. What John is saying is, man, you're really anointed. This is you. As for you, the anointing you have received from him remains in you. Now, notice what he goes on to say. And you do not need to you do not need anyone to teach you. Now, that's a little bit of what I would call hyperbole. What's hyperbole? Exaggeration. Now, we've got to be careful here because your mom's all told you not to exaggerate because exaggerating is lying. So if I say there's hyperbole in the Bible, you're tempted to hear me say that there's a lie in the Bible. But that's not the case because hyperbole is not exaggeration for the purpose of deceiving. Hyperbole is exaggeration for the purpose of what? Emphasis, making your point, putting it in bold, underscoring it, changing the color of the font. John obviously doesn't mean in some absolute way that you don't need anyone to teach you. If he really did mean that, what wouldn't he be doing? He wouldn't be teaching you. Uh, And he also knows that Paul says that when Christ ascended on high, he gave gifts to the church. And the first gift that he gave was the gift of pastor, teacher. But he wants to make a point. And the point is that as learners, learning is a spiritual exercise. Yes, it involves you thinking, but it also involves you depending on the Holy Spirit to be your teacher. You see, you do not need to teach anyone, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. I trust that one of the reasons why you come to church on Sunday is because you want to hear Mike preach. You want to sit under his teaching. That's great. And I trust that you come because you want to hear God preach through Mike. Now, which is it? Is it Mike or is it God? It's both. It's a human thing and it's a divine thing. God uses human agency. See, but when you come, not only do you need to depend on the Holy Spirit to anoint Mike, but you need to depend on the Holy Spirit to anoint you. The anointing on the teacher, the anointing on the listener. See, this is a very spiritual thing. Um, When my mother gave me my first Bible, it was the king. Red letter. I still have it. She wrote in the front of it from Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not use your understanding. Oh, 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 that's right. Lean not on your own understanding. It doesn't say don't use it, right? It says don't lean on it. Don't rely on it. Don't trust it. God gave you brains. He didn't give you brains so that you wouldn't use them. He gave you brains so that you would use them. And he also gave you hearts so that as you use your brain, you won't ultimately be putting your trust in your own powers, but you'll be putting your trust in the Holy Spirit to be your teacher. Now, let's go back to Psalm 1 
and that question that Mike raised, because I want to bring our study of Psalm 1 to a conclusion by asking you a question. How many of you would like to have right now well-being in every area of your life? It's easy. It's easy. Here's all it takes. Never take the wrong advice. Never do the wrong thing. Never have the wrong attitude. And this life is yours. Here's where we have to see that before we embrace Psalm 1 as a psalm about us, it's first of all a psalm about Christ. Was Christ ever given the advice of the wicked? Give me an example. In the temptation. Right when he's beginning his, his ministry, he's given the wrong advice repeatedly. Or how about when he tells his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem and Peter says, no way, you're not going to Jerusalem. There's got to be a better way. Or how about when he's on the cross and when they say, come down, if you come down, we'll believe in you. Throughout his whole ministry, he repeatedly was getting the wrong advice. Did he ever take it? No. See, he did not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He did not stand in the way of sinners. He, he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. Did he ever sit down in the seat of mockers and scoff at the authority of his heavenly Father's will? Not even in the garden. You'll remember when he was praying in the garden, he said to his father, look, dad, you and I are on the exact same page. We want to bring about salvation. I just want you to know that if there's a plan B somewhere that's possible, I'm all about plan B. What did he then say? Nevertheless, not my will. You see, his attitude was not one of mocking and scoffing and rebelling against the will of God, but rather it was one of humble submission to the will of God. What's my point? My point is that Jesus has lived Psalm 1 perfectly for you. So don't go away from these lessons on Psalm 1 thinking, oh, if I can only do, do, do more, then I will be, what's the H word that everybody wants? Then I will be happy. See, that's a performance mentality. Uh, I remember a pastor, some of you may know his name, Jack Miller. I remember hearing him uh, speak at a conference that I was at, and folks didn't know him there. He introduced himself this way. He said, hi, my name is Jack Miller. I'm a recovering Pharisee. I'm a recovering Pharisee. Because we all have the tendency to think that our relationship with God is based on how we perform. And so when we think we're doing well, we think we've got a pretty good relationship with God. And when we feel like we're not doing so well, we feel like our relationship with God is kind of like not so hot, right? Because we're really basing it on our performance. But what Psalm 1 is teaching us is that your relationship with God is based on one J word. What doctrine? J-U justification. 
You see, you're justified. God views you right now as people who perfectly conform to Psalm 1. He does. He looks at you right now and he says, now there's somebody who's never taken the wrong advice, never done the wrong thing, and never had a bad attitude. That's how he views you. You're justified for two reasons. Christ lived this psalm for you. He lived a life of perfect righteousness and wisdom in your place. And by the way, what Mike's question is getting at, if this psalm teaches that if you do all the right things, you'll get all the right stuff, except for the exceptions, why did Jesus do all the right things and get the wrong stuff? For us, exactly. Because for every time when we took the wrong advice, did the wrong thing, had the wrong attitude, Jesus took all of that in his own body on the tree. And so his life of perfect righteousness ends up not in blessedness, but in curse because he's bearing the curse for our sins in his body on the cross. So two things. One, Jesus has already lived Psalm 1 for you. Do not think you have to live it well enough or better and better in order to have a good relationship with God. That's your justification. But there's also an S doctrine. Sanctification. Jesus has not only lived Psalm 1 for you. Jesus, by his word and spirit, is in the process of producing Psalm 1 in you. He's lived it for you, and he's producing it in you. He not only died for you, but he was raised for you. He ascended to the Father's right hand for you. He poured out the Holy Spirit for you. He's right now praying for you that you would become the people of Psalm 1 more and more. And you are. Until the day comes, like my father, a couple of weeks ago, when he enters into the perfection of being the man of Psalm 1 in his everyday experience. Now, we just have to leave this to God. God God views you as those who are perfect keepers of Psalm 1 because of who Christ is. And God knows that that just isn't the case. He views you as in perfect conformity to Psalm 1, and he knows the real you in the day-to-day living, and guess what? He still loves you. Because his love for you isn't based on how well you're doing at any moment. His love is based solely on how well Christ did for you in his life, death, resurrection, ascension to the Father's right hand, and intercession for you. And he loves you so much that he doesn't want you to stay where you are. He wants you to grow becoming more and more the blessed people of Psalm 1 until you see him face to face and you experience this blessedness in all of its perfection. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And um, we bless you for Psalm 1 as it, like all of Scripture, leads us to the feet of Christ, whom we adore Uh, whom we worship, whom we serve out of gratitude for who he is and for what he has done for us. Praying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.